Hello, everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people on whose land the broadcast is created today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and recognise the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and region. Today, a special edition of Work With Purpose where we look at women in leadership. Andrew Campbell, the Chief Executive of the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, hosts a conversation with Dr Cathy Foley, Australia's Chief Scientist, Professor Tanya Munro, who's the Chief Defence Scientist at the Department of Defence, and Dr Kate Rowe, the Deputy Program Leader at the Department of Defence. And with these three talented and intelligent ladies, he talks about women in science and science leadership more specifically, and their personal experiences in the public, private and academic sectors. It's a future-focused conversation where all sorts of interesting conversations around diversity and innovation and other topics are covered in what is a very interesting conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Um, My name's Andrew Campbell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. And today we're talking about women in leadership and specifically women in science leadership, although I'm sure we'll cover much broader terrain than that. And we're lucky to have three fabulous women leaders with us. Um, Dr Cathy Foley, Australia's Chief Scientist, uh, Professor Tanya Munro, who's the Chief Defence Scientist at the Department of Defence, and Dr Kate Rowe, who's Deputy Program Leader at the Department of Defence. So all uh, have had amazing careers and in a half hour we'll try and just get a, the tip of the iceberg of lessons about leadership and um, not just for women in STEM but uh, women generally. Can we start by reflecting on the year that we've just had, the year that we're still in, and lessons that we, that we may have learned about leadership uh, during what I'm sure for most of us has been an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary period of disruption and, and responding on the go. Um, Kate, can I start with you and also introduce yourself a bit. What's inspired you to get where you are and what have been some of your main formative experiences? Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Um, so to introduce myself, uh, yes, I am the Deputy Program Leader for a, a program of research in Defence Science and Technology Group looking at uh, long-term force design and supporting force integration. There have been many, a, a, a convoluted journey to get to where I am, as I think is probably true of most uh, most people who reach a, a senior role in uh, particularly women in science. Uh, so I started out as a aeronautical engineer in aircraft structural integrity, um, moved around a little bit within DST and I've ended up in this area doing operations analysis to support uh, long-term force design, which I absolutely love. This last year has uh, been very interesting, as it has for many. Um, the team that I work with is spread across four, site, four states, and previously we have spent a lot of time travelling and working together that way, uh, and we've had to be very innovative. 
and I think the thing I would like to share reflecting on my year is actually that that innovation in terms of how we work has actually also been borne out in what we're doing, uh, that, that we've really actually been being creative, not just in how we communicate and how we get together, but in doing, doing our science as well. And in some ways, I think um, the distributed uh, collaboration through COVID has brought in more disciplines and we've got some really exciting uh, products out of that as a result. Fantastic. Mm. We might come back to that point about bringing in more yes. disciplines and more diverse perspectives. <laughs> Tanya. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here to talk with you today. So I'm Australia's Chief Defence Scientist and I've been in this role for two and a bit years now. After a career that has seen me spend most of my time in research and research leadership in Australia's universities, um, I... It's interesting to reflect on this this period of COVID because it actually makes me reflect on my own choices um, along my career pathway. I'm really focused on fostering environments where really good science and technology can pull through to impact. And there's one thing we've had during the COVID period, which is absolute clarity around priorities. There have been numerous things that we've been able to do over the last year, year and a half, which have required us to knock down some of the barriers between government departments, between organisations focused on some of the COVID priorities. And what I've learnt is that when, when people have absolute clarity on what's important, they tend to get on with it and be energised and deliver outcomes. And, and if I reflect on myself and my own choices and my own path here, um, while I think once a scientist, always a scientist, I, I, I feel every day that has some real science in it and some real interaction with scientists is a good one. Um, I am absolutely drawn to, try, to roles where I can make a difference in ensuring that knowledge, those new ideas actually make a difference. And I think COVID has shown us some new ways of doing that, which I think are very exciting. Cathy, our chief scientist. Yeah, so, well, Andrew, you're right. I am Australia's chief scientist. I've been in this role just since the beginning of 2021. Before that, I was CSIRO's chief scientist but had worked in the organisation for 36 years on a whole range of things from starting as a postdoc all the way through to chiefs of division and, 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 and their chief scientists. So I, I guess I've been from the grassroots all the way through to looking at how to make science impactful and take it all the way through from the bench and initial discovery through to commercialisation. Um, I guess my role at the moment is threefold. One is to make sure that the government has the best possible scientific advice so that they can use that when they're making complex decisions and policy development. The second is to be an advocate for Australian science, both here and overseas. And the third one is working with the sector and government and industry to see how we can make our science sector as effective, impactful and efficient as possible. So, so that's sort of the area I'm working in. And it's been really interesting just, uh, I thought maybe talk, I'd talk a little bit from a personal perspective about the impact that COVID uh, or the pandemics had on me, particularly um, going from someone who's always worked at work and had my private life private in a sense, 
so that I, um, when I was at work, I was the boss and in charge. At home, I was the mum and the wife and the, you know, the, the social secretary and all the things that go with often the role of women in the household. Even though I, I feel like my husband and I have a really equal and balanced relationship, I was really surprised at the anxiety I had when we said, we're told you had to work from home. And I thought, how do I actually be at home working and being CSRO's chief scientist while at the same time being Kathy Foley, mum, uh, wife, housemaker and all that sort of stuff. And I'll be honest in saying I found it really anxiety creating and it's something which surprised me. I, I, I got over it really fast by setting up um, my office, which is one of the kids, my kids are all grown up now, so one of the empty bedrooms. And I was able to uh, just, that's my office. And when I go in there, I work. And no one else comes in there. I close the door and I work. And then when I come out, I'm, I'm me again as a, as a non-working person. And that was really important to figure out that strategy. And I thought that was something which was a surprise for me. I didn't expect to have that emotional reaction. Very good. Um, I think we might come back to that, also the balance of work and, and private life in a, in a more teleconnected environment. But first, all of you are what would might be called hard scientists, uh, uh, high temperature semiconductors, photonics, uh, statistics. Um, and I was, my eyebrows certainly hit the roof early in the Brexit debate when Michael Gove said, uh, the public's sick of experts. Uh, and uh, it may be that COVID has reminded society that expertise does have some uses and, and that if we can get the balance right with science informing policy, we get good outcomes. Would you each like to reflect on, on that, your experiences as a science leader in the public sector, but at the interface between public and private and how we grapple with these big decisions we're facing? Well, that's, I guess, my business is all about saying how can we make sure that we get the best possible advice. And that's really hard because it's not as though everything is settled and that this, you know, you look up in the literature and there, here's the single paper that says everything is correct and so off you go and, and, and this will have a, create a, a clear pathway forward. So in many ways, it's actually gathering information, understanding where the best, what is the best information because quite often you can see conflicting scientific reports and you need to sort of work out how to turn those into um, advice and also then work out how it's meaningful and how it can be interpreted in a way. So one of the things which actually Alan Finkel, my predecessor, did uh, last year, which was I think fantastic, was he created what was called the Rapid Response Information Forum where our ministers would ask a question about COVID and then we were able to go to through the academies, contact the best, most recent research and researchers and pull together a, um, sort of a ready rector of the material in 1,500 words of something that's understandable of information, not recommendations, just the answer to the scientific question that was being posed. And government found that really, really helpful. And I think that's garnered the idea of how we can now provide better ways of information to government through this process. So that's, from my perspective, what I'm seeing is a, a hunger and a realisation of what we can provide government by being able to answer those questions succinctly and quickly. And if I may, I think that 
Cathy's given a good example. I think that we have seen clear recognition of the positive outcomes Australia has benefited from from taking the advice of experts seriously. I think we've still got a way to go to really embed that as a cultural piece across all sectors. Um, I have to say that within defence, I'm constantly pleased to see that evidence and data is at the core of decision making. I think there's a lot more we can do. You know, I think um, the Office of the Chief Scientist initiative around policy fellowships is a wonderful initiative, a way of getting some experienced scientists into government. Um, I think there are other initiatives like Science Meets Parliament, which has been going for many years, to just give um, scientists working outside the public sector or public service a better appreciation of how to communicate their science in a way that's not off-putting, that's engaging, and I think that's very powerful as well. But I guess I'll be much happier to see more people with science training in a variety of roles on both the policy side and, to be frank, the politics side of the divide, because I think that ultimately we're in a world where the ability to weigh evidence and data and make decisions is ever more important. And we need not just to connect the experts, but to support the decision makers to do that better. And I, Kate, I note you're working on what we call wicked problems yes. that aren't necessarily, don't lend themselves to simple solutions or prescriptions. And you bring statistics to that. We do. Do. do you think some of those tools could be used more broadly outside defence and, and outside wargaming? Your question, the premise behind your question is actually one of the key reasons that I am interested in raising the profile of my area of science, operations analysis. I have actually been very privileged that within the Department of Defence, the, the science that we do is very well respected. Uh, it, it's not always... Uh, listen to precisely, but we have a strong voice and, and definitely are able to, to influence um, in that community. Uh, and the tools that we use are really well suited to understanding the kind of problem that government has been grappling with in the last 12 months. Um, I guess on a personal level, I've actually been rather dismayed to realise how many fields this is not the case. In, it, it, it's not as routinely accepted as, as I have. And even you know, among my sort of social group, um, how people don't hear and understand the evidence that's presented to them. And that's a lot of what we do in, in DST, in, in supporting uh, decision makers and in investing in the future, is present the information in a way that they can understand. Coming back to COVID for a moment, um, this morning, um, one of my colleagues in the Philippines said that she'd, she'd found leadership with empathy was one of the key things that, that had emerged, that everyone knows that everyone else has got, uh, is doing it tough in different ways. And so leaders have had to be naturally much more concerned about the welfare of their teams and, and so on. Has that been something that you guys have found in your work? And... What are the things that we've learned out of COVID that, that we shouldn't lose uh, in the future? I'm, I won't say out the other end because we don't, we don't know when or what that might look like, but what are the, some of the, the gains that we've made that we should be very careful to retain? If I can kickstart yes, that, um, leading DST group and its eight sites around Australia, I've really been struck 
by the difference in experience of our people through COVID, the extended duration of the Victorian lockdown made a huge impact that is still felt today by our staff. Um, there's certainly a greater degree of anxiety amongst people who've had that more extended um, exposure. I think what this period has done is actually made it significantly safer for people to talk within their organisation, within their work groups, with their leaders and managers um, about the impacts that the workplace has on them. And I think it's blurred the boundaries between the personal and the professional, as Cathy flagged before, in a way that can be healthy. But I think it's also shown me personally, you can just never assume someone else's experience. You know, there have been some that have thrived. You know, I, I know on a personal level, I really feel very lucky over the last year or so to have just spent more time with family and less time on planes. <laughs> That's just been a wonderful thing. Um, but for many others, you know, I, it ranges from people who've been separated from family for re really long periods to people who I was talking to one colleague who was living in a very, very small flat, expecting that, you know, he'd spend most of his life at large and found he was then, you know, in very close confines working off an ironing board, you know. Mm. Um, so people have had very, very different experiences. Um, and I think if it teaches us to think of the whole person, then we'll have gained a lot through COVID. I think it's also been, on one level, a real equaliser. I can remember very early on um, there was a webinar which had the Treasurer, um, Minister Frydenberg, talking about uh, the the introduction, this is very early on in, in, the, in the pandemic, and what his plans were to introduce, you know, all the different uh, approaches they've had uh, financially which have proven to be very successful. And the thing which was really interesting was um, on, it was on a Zoom um, webinar and you had uh, the former Prime Minister, Mr Howard, there. You had uh, vice-chancellors, you had PhD students and general public members all looking like they could have been anybody. And it was something which... Yeah, it has been. And I guess it's almost like welcoming people into your house to some extent, because back then they didn't have the false backgrounds. And it's it was something which actually in some ways was, uh, as you were saying, that creating a, the full person. But I think the other, which is, you know, something to take away from this is new ways of working, which I don't think we'll ever go back to, you know, sort of those of us who were catching multiple planes every week and, you know, living on high levels of overtiredness because you were getting up at four o'clock, you know, three times a week and working till 11 and jumping from city to city. I think that's become a thing of the past because of uplift. I think they said that the transformation in digital capability within industry went in six months or 12 weeks or something, the equivalent of 10 years worth of development. And so we've seen the ability for people to use um, digital capabilities and they've just you know, blossomed in that time too. And then I guess the other is the opportunities for anyone to work anywhere to, regardless of um, their circumstances. So that if you've got a um, internet connection and a computer, you're pretty much open to the world. And that's suddenly changing things. I think the paradigm of where you are, um, we're seeing people willing to relocate to more remote areas. So long as they've got good MBN, then off they go. So, so I think that's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. Can these developments help women in leadership? Is this 
going to help particularly women in science uh, uh, deal with that career break for family reasons or whatever that have traditionally caused a, a hole in the CV, the academic CV. Um, do, do these new changes provide some opportunities for us to crack some of those long-standing <laughs> nuts? Maybe. Uh, the others might have because... They, um, I might start off this one. Um, so I think that it, it helps in some things, certainly that empathetic leadership and the whole person absolutely helps uh, understand where each of your team members are at. However, um, in my observation has been actually this has really shone the spotlight on the conflicted roles of women yeah. in the workplace. And yeah. and when you are working at home and, you know, there's a, a, you know, my, my husband and my daughter um, both at home and there is this, this stronger um, responsibility often on the woman for all the other jobs. And I should say, actually, in my case, that my husband um, homeschooled my daughter last year and so he's all over this. So uh, I just realised he's going to be listening to this. So I wanted to <laughs> set the record straight in that matter. Uh, but I'm well aware of that stress for many of my of my colleagues, um, that, that they're the ones who then feel squeezed. Having said that, I think this is a good launching pad for us to to take the gains that we've made in terms of flexible working arrangements, and where people when it's when it's then a choice rather than a have to, it opens up a whole range of possibilities. Look, a couple of comments on that. I support everything Kate said there. Um, I think we've just got to be careful that we don't put too much load or expectation on women to have to juggle everything simultaneously. I think. You know, there's some real benefits from the way of working we experienced over the last year in terms of staying connected. But I think also, I remember as a new mother returning for to work after maternity leave, the headspace you have of going into the workplace and knowing that your baby was safe and cared for gave you the space to engage. If you were trying to do that and and ever be attuned to the cry in the next room, I think it would be debilitating. Mm. So I think we do have to be very careful. Um, I think you're absolutely right that there is a disproportionate gendered load on women. I think we've got to be very thoughtful. I mean, some of the things we're tracking within our organisation is as we return to more of a normal balance, what proportion of men use flexible arrangements? Mm. <laughs> is that sufficiently high? Because that's almost a proxy indicator of uh, whether people who do that feel they can still progress. Yes. Mm. I, I saw some data coming out of the UK, I think, in the Financial Times, that the, the people who've gone back to work the quickest are the ones that are getting promoted the most. Mm -hmm. And the ones that have stayed home are not getting promoted at the same rate. So there's some interesting things there we that's, need to keep an eye on. That's actually really an important point, is that what is good? Mm. And often, you know, sometimes they call it the Santa Claus effect, where what you have is, you know, performance just before the decision is seen as the basis of which the decision is made, not looking at your work overall. And I think um, I do want to raise the issue of, you know, hybrid models. Uh, and the I think that what I'm seeing is that um, working from home all the time or working at work all the time seems to work. Uh, when you're actually swapping between the two, that actually, well, I have it at the moment. I work in Canberra three days a week and work from home two days a week. And uh, because I'm based in, I live in Sydney and the job's in Canberra. And the thing is really interesting is I, I do find I'm always missing something, you know, like there's some critical notes which is in the wrong location. Or you're lugging huge amounts of stuff from one city to the other. And I know you should have it all digitally 
accessible, but world, like, I mean, just the way I operate, I haven't got there yet. I'm getting better at it, but it's just, I'm just, I've always been one to write notes during meetings. So mm. it's, it's, so that's something, and I, I think is going to be a big issue, particularly in the university sector, where they're finding at the moment they've got a hybrid face-to-face um, -face and online, and they actually have to prepare two sets of lectures. And I'm hearing that the and beginning we're beginning to see the evidence scientifically that the publication rates ha, have plummeted. Yeah. And just this year, last year when everyone was working from home, publication rates rose a little bit. But now they've completely dropped to probably 10% of what they were wow. so far this this calendar year. And uh, and I suspect it's because that there's just. The, that hybrid model, we haven't got that right yet, so we need to think through what does that mean and how do we assess the idea of what is, you know, what is good, what is what is uh, quality. And I think it's interesting that that statistic you mentioned, I think, mm. highlights that. Um, can I get each of you to reflect on your transition to leadership from sort of mid-career to where you are now uh, as women in science, women in the public sector? Mm. What are some of the lessons you've learned out of that that transition period of stepping up uh, into the the, the C-suite, as it were, uh, in, not that we have one in the public sector. Tanya, you want to start? Oh, happy to. Um, look, I, it's something I've reflected on a lot because um, I guess I'll break it down into a few elements. Um, I've always been someone really driven to form teams that can deliver on outcomes and so when you look at it with that lens, my leadership choices along my career path make a lot of sense. But I remember actually finding one of the most difficult aspects was really around identity um, and around the perception of the difference way people would see you, whether you're a, a scientist, an active working scientist, actively creating knowledge, rather than someone leading scientists. Um, my own experience of it was that it was a more gradual evolution, but um, I, I did notice a marked difference in perception. Um, and perception that it's management and administrative rather than thought leadership and shaping and, and delivering. I think that's one, one comment I'd make. Um, but the other thing I would say is just how empowering I've found the shift because there's nothing like the feeling that you can make a change to how other people experience the workplace so that they can thrive and so that you can deliver outcomes. And, and while, look, you know, there's equally a thrill in doing science, for me there was a magnifying effect through leadership where you could, you could make a difference that at scale meant that we could deliver outcomes. So, Kate, you've gone from being a deep technical specialist to being an APS leader. I have, yes. I haven't quite reached the illustrious heights of my colleagues here. Uh, I think I'm still firmly in middle-level management. Um, however, there's been a significant transition for me from dealing, yes, very, very deeply in the science to leading in a, a mixed workplace. And for me, that's mixed in terms of uh, technical people, military officers in uniform, as well as dealing a lot with, I guess, the, the, the broader Australian public service that's not 
scientists. So, so we are DST. Yes, we are APS. But um, but there's a different personality type that we're dealing with in that. And I really resonated with what you said, Tanya, about that that sense of um, amplifying the influence. And it's very exciting to be able to actually take what we do in in science and have that influence across the broader community. So the journey for me has been one of learning to speak another language, um, learning to communicate without the jargon um, to and to really keep, uh, I guess it's been the key actually to leading these teams, is uniting around the common purpose and framing that purpose in a way that everyone in the team can understand and understand how their parts actually uh, feed into this into this whole. Uh, and that's, I think, where that where that synergy and that amplification comes from that, that is so exciting as a leader. Cassie. Yeah, so it's really interesting being in these higher levels. I've been in the situation where I haven't actually had direct line management because the chief scientist is, uh, unlike in Tanya's role, where she's also the CE, I guess, of her organisation. You're up in the satellite. I'm, I'm actually on the side. Mm -hmm. So I, I have all care and no responsibility, mm -hmm. I suppose. And so I've had to learn influencing skills extraordinaire, I guess. And... It's been really interesting on a couple of the f levels of it. The first one is the need to always be calm and to, it doesn't matter what's falling to pieces everywhere, that people look to you to be calm and to just um, think and strategize the way through. And, um, and you can't bring your anxieties, your, you know, whatever's happening at home and things that aren't going well for you. They're, they're, they're left at home and you, you uh, people look to you to be the you know, highest behaviours, I guess, levels of behaviours, not slagging off on people, not sort of throw, have throwaway comments, which might then be interpreted as therefore everyone's got to rush away to do things. So you've got to be very mindful about all, all communication I have. And then the other is also recognising how to make sure that it's that I recognise that it's, I'm not the fountain of all knowledge. I'm the chief scientist of Australia, but I actually don't know everything about all science. So uh, making it clear that I'm a conduit where I, to, to listen to a whole range of ideas, thoughts, and my role is to actually bring those together, I guess convene the information, convene the people who bring the information together, but then bring it together into something which is able to influence and think in terms of who is it that has to use this information to be able to do different or uh, have, have some sort of impact in some way. So that's it's sort of quite a different role than just, you know, when I was chief of a division, you pull this lever and you know something will happen. Although as you get more senior, you also realise that, you know, when you're the alternative government, you say, well, if I was in charge, I'd do this, this and this. And then you get in charge and you think, oh, my God, it's not quite as easy <laughs> as that. And I think that's that dealing with complexity and recognising where your priorities are and identifying what are the few things, because normally you're in these very senior roles for quite a short time. And so, you, well, you know, at the moment this current role is three years. So what is it I can do in three years that will really make a difference? Yeah. How do I make sure I'm not trying to do everything, you know, boil the ocean, I think we often say, but actually pick a couple of things and do them really well so that I leave a legacy and an impact. Not because I want to leave a legacy with my name all over it. It's more to do with saying it was worth my while being in this position and being able to see if, uh, as Australia's chief scientist, I leave Australia in a better, slightly better place. And 
I, I guess that's that really changes the way I'm thinking about what I'm you know what I'm doing and what I'm not doing, and and that's hard because sometimes you've got to say no to things, and sometimes you've got your greatest passions that you've got to put in your back pocket because this isn't the time. When I'm talking to our grads or to young uh, scientists, we're funding. Uh, I often talk about the T-shaped professional, where you you try and have one area of expertise that's deep, and where you stay uh, in touch with the literature and go to the conferences and so on. But then there's a whole bunch of of other generic skills: teamwork, communication, project planning, project management, budgeting, conflict resolution, or whatever. Has the pandemic uh, and the operating context that we're in now meant that those those skills are the ones that get you the job? You, your discipline might get you the, the short list, uh, but how you plug into a team, how you plug into an organisation is going to be the, the thing that determines your effectiveness. And does that particularly suit women's leadership attributes? I would add one more thing to that is your networks. Of course. Yeah, because I think that's something where probably women don't necessarily realise the importance of their networks and how to identify the links with them because we often talk about the old boys club and we've now got the fantastic women's club and uh, and that uh, and they're very important to have the ability to know where to go to to get support and also I guess sponsorship for yeah. for um, achieving you know trying to push through through any change I think that's a really mm. good point I'm not sure I've seen a substantial shift over this time in the way people are being selected for roles I still think we have some of the old challenges I still find that we have to work really hard to tap women on the shoulder on the whole to get them to apply for mm. leadership roles it's something I still experience um, and there are still few, too few coming up through the pipeline and, and deciding to stay in science leadership roles so I I think it's a long-term game. I, I, I become more and more focused that actually what we need to do is um, no one single silver bullet but a whole range of things and I think where I'm particularly focused on at the moment is in the inclusion helping create environments where women and men, because I think this, if you get it right, it works across um, the whole cohort, feel they can make a difference and their contributions are valued. And I think that's often one of the key reasons that, that women choose not to stay in and move up to more senior roles. Can I just pick you up on that? We've got some questions here from um, members of the IPA Future Leaders Committee. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Amy Burgess from AG's Attorney-General's Department has, has asked, what's the most effective initiative you've seen throughout your career to improve gender diversity in science, but we can say that more broadly here, and how could that be replicated more broadly? So to make sure that we, we do capture gains and, and not s slip back, what are some of the best things you've seen? Kate? Well, I'm quite eager to talk about the Superstars of STEM program. <laughs> um, so I am part of um, a, a program this year called Superstars of STEM. And the purpose of that is to try and amplify the voices of women in science uh, because you may notice just how much of sort of the public discourse on technical matters is male voices to try and get more, more women uh, visible. 
And so uh, I must confess, I can't speak to its long-term effectiveness, but I'm very excited by what I've seen already. So I, I uh, saw superstars of STEM previously, which encouraged me to apply for the program. And I've certainly been aware of that of that need. Uh, and so I, I'm very excited about this. I know for me personally, there's there's some gaps in my skill set that this is this is filling for me, and being able to talk to the broader the broader public. So. Yeah, I think it's a great program. And building off Kate's comments, I think Superstars of STEM is fantastic because if you just look at the cohorts we've had so far, what an extraordinary group of future and current leaders we have there in that across such a diverse range of areas. Um, look, there's no one single solution. I think it's got to be a range of things. I think the SAGE initiative, so Science Australia Gender Equity, has been critical in focusing organisations on their data because it's just so easy to be complacent and say, ah, oh, you know, that's sorted, it's just about getting them in the door. It's not, it's about a much richer range, understanding your own organisation and, and putting leaders in a position where they have to be accountable. So I think that's absolutely critical. Um, and one thing that I think is really powerful is that through SAGE, all of the institutions across Australia that have got their bronze accreditation have committed to action plans and you can read those action plans and you can get great ideas of best practice of what's happening in other places. So it's no one thing. Um, I just think we can't be complacent and we all need to be engaged. And, you know, I'm a member of the now renamed Male Champions of Change, which is now the Champions of Change Coalition, a name change that I and others welcome. I feel more at home in, a, in, that, in that name. Um, and we've all in the STEM group just committed to a bold action. And the bold action that I've committed to for my organisation is to create a mid-career entry program to bring people in to defence, research and science that might be five to 15 years out of a PhD, um, done postdocs, et cetera, looking for that longer term ability to contribute. And that program will be 50-50 male, female, with that real commitment to refresh and energise that mid-career level of women in our in our organisation. So I think you know, it'll be really interesting to see what all the other organisations do for their bold initiatives and we don't mind beg, borrowing or stealing from each other's Absolutely. good ideas. So. so from my perspective, what I've seen made a big difference is um, organisations realising that if they don't have gender equity at um, the highest level, they're not necessarily have the best people. and. Uh, and so, for example, I know in CSIRO, Larry Marshall just went through saying we're going to have 50-50 in the board, 50-50 in the executive team, and he's working his way down through the organisation. And uh, and he and I've, I've been really impressed by how he's really lived it, so uh, I, to the point where it's been difficult, for example, for me, where I've been in the audience and he's sat on a panel and went, oh, my goodness, there's no women on this panel, and you say, Kathy, we're swapping out. And so suddenly on short notice, in, in a public event, I've had to swap into something I'm completely unprepared for. But he was making that point and he's done that many times. Um, and Or he's cancelled something when he's got the, the run sheet and found that, that that's the case. So he's really lived it. The other one which I've been impressed with is the Academy of Technology and Engineering, which has set a really clear um, target of the percentage of women every year who are elected to the fellowship. And the thing that is really interesting is the huge number of amazing women who just would have been overlooked in the past, but that's 
again, because a lot of these things are based on networks and who's recommended, and because you're forcing to look beyond just your normal number, you know, people you know, I've been blown away by some of the people, women who've been um, just elected in the, in the, ever since they've created this, and every year they equally, they easily get to their their, their target, and a few more. And then people, you think, why weren't they elected years ago? Because they are part of the way of providing you know, evidence and advice to government as well. And we're just missing out on that. So that, that's probably one, one area. The others which have, have, have identified important um, initiatives which are truly on a pathway to success. I think there's still one thing we haven't nailed yet, and that is um, particularly for women in, in the STEM area, the 30s is the time when you traditionally make your career and it's also the time when you're um, having children and I don't think we've got the childcare, work, life balance, um, um, identifying what does good look like and how we um, incentivise and promote people. I don't think we've got that right yet. And to build on Cathy's point there, I think our career structures, particularly in our university sector, are really problematic at that particular career stage for women. Um, and you tend to find a, almost a bimodal distribution. Those women who get sufficiently senior early enough mm. can weather that period of young children mm. relatively easier, whereas those that are still in that tenuous employment at that stage tend to struggle for a long time. And probably move out of science, mm. often, sadly. I also think that one of the avenues for addressing that particular issue is around what we were talking about earlier, with access to flexible working arrangements and having that culturally acceptable for men as well as women, which then enables the couple to share that load more evenly. I think that's one of the key things, and we don't focus enough on that particular part of it. A wonderful initiative I'd love to highlight <laughs> was ANU's recent one to let men take six months paternity leave. Yeah, for example, as well. it's a great, um, great yeah, example. It's fantastic. So there are great examples out there. Just on the 50-50, Cathy, I, I found it was more, it was better to have 40-40-20, but even then we overshot. So we went from 11% women in senior roles to 70%. So we we, we now have to try and right. try it's, and get back it, a bit. That's and that's we've got because there are also careers where there's not enough men mm. you know, from primary school teachers, carers mm. and many other, and nursing. And these are things where we're also not getting the people who are, you know, aspire to that and they're not getting that opportunity and they're male. So. OK, I'd like us to finish up with um, focusing on uh, people in more junior roles that are not yet in positions of authority. And personally, one of the things I'm most excited about at IPRA is our reverse mentoring uh, program. But what do you think more junior staff can do to encourage cultural change and manage upwards and to influence those above them to shift their thinking? So uh, that people can influence at all levels and I must confess I think that's something that I have done throughout my career um, is from the you know from first joining a team you have a voice a good leader will will listen to and hear the feedback if you just are prepared to offer it and, and not think, oh, that's not my place. It is your place. I think that's probably my, my key message is it is the place of every single team member to contribute to the culture of that team. I do acknowledge that not all leaders um, will, will hear that uh, willingly. 
But even in whatever circumstance you find yourself with uh, under a particular leader, that there will be a circle of influence and to focus on that circle of influence rather than on ranting about factors that are beyond your control. Uh, I think most people actually have more power to influence than they realise. I think Kate's absolutely right. And what I'd say is never assume you can't make a difference regardless of the seniority of your role. If you phrase it in a constructive way, an authentic way based on your own experience. I can, I, I'd say as a leader, some of my most energising times are when a nugget of feedback comes to you and you see something from a perspective you haven't before and you change your view or your approach as a result. It can be from the almost trivial, like, you know, recently I was told that um, we'd planned an all-staff event for a date which in one state was still school holidays, so I canned it and rescheduled it. You know, or to things that are really quite strategic. Um, I think never feel you can't make a difference if you do it in a positive, constructive way. Probably some practical ways are, are things like putting your hand up to be on the uh, staff management sort of joint meetings of some sort. They are often a way to get you know a really clear um, pathway into having uh, influence. The other one is also, um, I think it's sort of touched on, but when you see something that could improve the workplace, you know, in a respectful way, raise it. I, I know as an early career researcher, I mean, my, I started having kids 30-something years ago when there was no long daycare and, uh, and uh, a couple of us did a survey, gathered information, found that there was a need for it, uh, garnered the input from local council who got a grant, got CSRA to give us some land and we built a childcare centre and you know for the last 30 something years that's been available to the staff and, and the community and it's something which you know was a consequence of quite junior staff recognising a need but going through a very business-like approach and not just sitting around whinging about it. I think exactly. quite often people think that if I whinge about it enough, somehow the osmosis will take over and it'll go up the way to the mm. C, C, C office or whatever. So it's, uh, but it's not that. It's, it's actually being respectful, working out how the system works mm. and how to make sure you can put your voice across in a way that it will be heard. And there's, lot, there's always ways of, of um, or any research or, or any workplace usually has a good way of hearing uh, from its staff. Otherwise, it's probably not the place you want to work. Uh, I agree. Con constructive feedback from below will always impress a good boss. No. And they're the ones you want to be working for anyway. That's absolutely true. Um, thank you very much to all three of you fantastic leaders uh, for sharing your insights with the IPA audience today. Thanks, Thank you. you. Fantastic conversation there between Andrew Campbell and as I say, three incredibly talent, talented and smart women working in the Australian Public Service, Dr Cathy Foley, Professor Tanya Munro and Dr Kate Rowe. And a big thanks to Andrew Campbell for hosting that enlightening conversation. Thanks again to you, the audience, for coming back once again to Work With Purpose. We are very grateful for your support. If you do see the social media promotion, uh, please pass it along. A uh, acknowledgement, a reference, a, uh, a pass along, a, a vote of some sort of acknowledgement always helps. And a review. 
that never goes astray either. So thank you again very much for your support. A big thanks to IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission. Without their support, work with purpose doesn't happen. And to the team at Content Group who continue to work so hard uh, to find, uh, and not just find the great talent, but to put the programs together. A big thanks to them as well. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.